Welcome to the Tudor Her Story. Today's episode is with the wonderful Kate McCaffrey, Assistant Curator and Castle Historian at Hever Castle. Today we are going to be talking about Hever Castle's recent exhibition on Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, Mothers, Queens and Rivals. Hello Kate, thank you so much for joining me. Hi Jess, thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, so have I. So I thought before we could talk a bit about Catherine and Anne, we -hmm. could talk a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I was wondering, where did your interest in history begin? I think my interest in history began with my mum, actually, when I was very young. She always loved history, particularly kind of Tudor history, British history, And she always told my sister and I, when we were growing up, she used to tell us stories of women in power in the 16th, 17th centuries. So I think growing up hearing those kind of stories of strong women like Anne Boleyn, like Elizabeth I, that really kind of imbued that sense of a love of history and a love of historical women, particularly into my life. And then in school and university, I obviously pursued history as a subject, but I've always kept that kind of love of the history of women very close to me. That's really amazing. And obviously, we know that you work with two very strong women in history. Yes, definitely. Um, What made you want to start your career in history? I think I've always wanted, if I possibly could at all, to pursue a career in something that I was passionate about. I think that's just the dream for most people, isn't it? If you can make a career out of something that you love doing, then it's just that's a win-win. So knowing that I loved history so much growing up and loved studying it at university, I think I always hoped that I'd be able to kind of carve out a path for myself working in heritage in particular. I think for me, heritage is like history and practice because it's the places that people go to actually feel history alive still today. So I always loved working, the idea of working in heritage and working in keeping history alive for people. So I sort of when I managed to get into it, I worked at Heave when I was very young, but then working um, in a new capacity after my master's degree, I sort of basically asked them very nicely and very persistently to create a job role for me at Heave based on the research I'd done. And it worked out very well in the end. And I'm obviously still there. But um, yeah, I was, I've always been determined to try and work in something that I'm passionate about. And history has always been a great passion. That's amazing too. I think it's nice to hear that, you know, once you've got a passion, you've worked on that passion and you've made it a career. Because I think a lot of people struggle to know how to make a passion a career. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And it can be hard, I think, you know, but but you've got to, I think persistence is, is a massive thing. And I've definitely had to be persistent. Um, as Anne herself would have known, playing Perseverance, possibly in the Chateau Vert pageant. You have to persevere. <laughs> Absolutely. For people that don't know, you've done a lot of research into Anne's Book of Hours. Where did that interest kind of begin in researching her Book of Hours? I think I'd always, well, I'd always worked at Hever. So I started working at Hever when I was about 16. So I did work experience there first and, and I worked as a castle steward afterwards. So I'd always been around Anne's books of hours, obviously in their big wooden cases. I never got to get my hands on them, but I always loved them. I loved being in the room where they were. So 
when I started my master's degree and I was looking at possible topics for um, an essay actually initially um, and I thought about it was for my paleography module so um, I needed to work with old books and I thought that the dream for me would be to work with Anne Boleyn's books that I'd so loved looking at in the cases for so many years and I managed to get to do that basically by Alison Palmer, who's he was wonderful curator. She's the sort of gatekeeper of the books of ours, and she does that very brilliantly. But because she knew me from having worked there before and now I was gaining these qualifications, she trusted me to look through them in person. And I had no idea what I was going to find. Um, I really thought it would just be a good topic for an essay, but obviously it sort of evolved into my whole thesis eventually and has since, you know, been the basis of exhibitions and books and all sorts. So I had no idea when I first went to look at them that they'd sort of give me all of their secrets, but it's just been the most brilliant experience. No, absolutely. I've went to Heaver this year and seen the book of hours in person as such a wonderful experience. It is, isn't it? You feel so close to Anne, I think, or to any historical figure through items that you know that they used and loved. And the fact that Anne wrote in both of the books we have at Heaver is just such a close and intimate connection. It's just, they're very, very, very special objects. Absolutely. So I think we should start diving into our discussion today. Yes, yeah, let's. So we're talking about Heaver Castle's recent exhibition, Catherine and Anne, Queen's Rivals and Mothers, that ran I believe from February to November yes exactly I was thinking would you like to start with Catherine of Aragon's mm -hmm. youth and education yeah absolutely I mean Catherine of Aragon is also a figure who's always fascinated me and I think a big part of why we wanted to do this exhibition which was sparked by my research with their joint book of hours was because they so often have been pitted against one another in popular culture, in popular history and traditional history as well. Um, for centuries, it's always sort of you're either Team Catherine or Team Anne. And we really wanted to use um, my work with the Books of Ours and the discovery that they both owned the same book to be a kind of linchpin for looking at what else they shared in common. Because really they shared so much in common that's just kind of history is just wiped. So talking about youth and education as, as a place to start, yeah, Catherine, she was always born to be a queen. She was, and that's a big difference to Anne and her education. Um, but Catherine, from the age of three or four, knew that she was going to be the Queen of England one day. That's when the marriage negotiations started for her to marry Prince Arthur, so Henry VII's son and Henry VIII's older brother. Um, Catherine was born in 1485 in Spain, in Madrid, in modern-day Madrid, and she was the daughter of two very famous warrior monarchs, um, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. And their marriage had actually united um, two huge provinces in Spain, Castile and Aragon. And in Catherine's youth, she really saw the sort of whole of Spain be united under their rule. Um, in 1492, they conquered Granada, which was the Moorish kingdom. And Isabella and Ferdinand um, had been determined to unite Spain under Christian rule. They were sort of um, really championed by the Pope to do so. And so they did manage to do that. They succeeded. But a lot of Catherine's youth would have been traveling around a lot, watching her parents. Her mother in particular, I think, was a huge influence on, on Catherine. Um, Isabella of Castile was really famous across Europe for being this warrior queen. She literally rode her troops into battle. She led them. It's very unusual um, for the time and even since. 
And Catherine would have seen that influence. She would have seen her mother sort of leading the troops and rallying them and um, and leading them and exercising power in ways that women didn't really in the 16th century. So I think that's a crucial part of Catherine's upbringing. But they eventually settled at the Palace of the Alhambra um, in Granada, and that's where Catherine sort of took up most of her education. She was taught by the finest Italian humanist tutors, Isabella organized for her own tutor to teach Catherine Latin, but Catherine also learned um, philosophy of the Greek uh, philosophers like Aristotle. She learned history and politics and poetry, as well as all the kind of traditional feminine pursuits. Um, so she really had an incredibly eloquent education that was really pushed by the Italian um, humanist movement. And Isabella was very passionate about making sure that her children were raised to be future leaders of Europe. And obviously Catherine was destined to be one um, with her her betrothal to Arthur. So yeah, Catherine's education in Spain was made for her to be queen. um, And obviously in 1501, she finally, as a 15-year-old, was able to make the, the journey out to England to be betrothed or to, to be married to Arthur in person. They'd already been married by proxy, but but in November of 1501, they were able to sort of renew their vows in person. And uh, unfortunately, that marriage wasn't made to last. And Catherine's then life takes a whole new chapter in England. Um, but yes, that's that's her youth, really. Amazing. So obviously, you know, compared to Anne, you know, she's she's been made, brought up to be a queen. Yeah. So how do we think, Catherine was shaped by her mother because obviously her mother was such a strong figure. She was. I mean, I think I think she was shaped in in all sorts of ways by Isabella. I think she learnt how to be a good wife and a good princess from her tutors, um, but I think she learnt how to be a queen from her mother very much. So, like, I think there wasn't really a more powerful woman in Europe that Catherine could have observed and learned from than her mother. And I think we see that when Catherine comes to England in a myriad of different ways, but one that springs to mind is when she was made regent while Henry was um, away in France and she oversaw the kind of arrangement of for the, for the battle at Flodden. And she really showed her kind of warrior queen side there. I think she didn't lead her troops into battle as recent productions like the Spanish princess may lead us to believe. Um, but she did really rally them and organize them. And um, she was sort of a bit vicious actually when uh, the King of Scotland was um, killed and she wanted to send his body, his head to um, to Henry, but thought she wouldn't because of the English sensibilities. So you start to see bits of Isabella's um, sort of warrior ruthlessness coming in there. So I think Isabella influenced her in many, many different ways. So we know that obviously Arthur doesn't, survived the marriage with Catherine yeah and we know Catherine ends up marrying the main man himself Henry VIII in 1509 yes what was their relationship like I think actually Catherine and Henry's relationship was very very strong at the beginning um which again I think can often get lost in what we know happens in their later marriage and in Henry's later life but actually when they got married, Catherine and Henry were very much seen as the kind of perfect Renaissance couple, the perfect royal Renaissance couple. And they were kind of seen as the golden prince and princess or king and queen 
of Europe. Um, it was a marriage of dynasties, but it was also a marriage of two young, good-looking, cultured, educated royals. And I think there was a lot of popular goodwill um, for them. And I think the, the early years of their marriage, really up until maybe the late 1510s, early 1520s, um, was really quite happy. You know, they did, they obviously were very unfortunate in um, the amount of pregnancies that they had that either didn't go to term or didn't result in um, living children beyond infancy. So that obviously, I'm sure, placed a strain on the marriage, particularly with what we know about Henry and his desperate and increasing desire for a living son. But they did I think have a really strong relationship. I think Henry genuinely loved her and I think she was very devoted to him. And so I think it must've been absolutely devastating when for her, when their marriage started to break down. And, and I would say, I don't think it was Anne Boleyn who was the catalyst in the breakdown of their marriage. I think it had begun to break down for years before Henry set his eyes to Anne. We know that he has a son by Bessie Blount, um, Henry Fitzroy. We know that he's having affairs and um, we know that he has an affair with Anne's sister, obviously, Mary, before he turns his eye to Anne. So he his eye is really wandering before he meets Anne. But I think, yeah, for the first part of Catherine and Henry's marriage, it, it is wonderfully successful. And I think they're in love and very popular. So it's it's a shame sort of knowing what we know about how it kind of devolves. No, I, I find that very interesting what you said, because I'm of the same belief that, you know, it didn't just break down just like that. It, yes, yeah. I think I do think the miscarriages had such emotional trauma on the pair of them, and I think you know it did divide them. Totally, and, and I'm glad someone else has the same view because obviously it's <laughs> people have a very opinion, they're very opinion based when it comes to Catherine and Anne, Catherine mm-hmm. and Henry, mm-hmm. Anne and Henry. But um, what was religion like for Catherine? Because obviously we know she was very religious. Yeah. Yeah, she was, I think religion was a central pillar of Catherine's life. I think she, as it was for many people at the time, but I think Catherine in particular, and probably in particular when her marriage with Henry started to devolve, I think she really relied on her relationship with God. And we certainly associate Catherine more with the traditional Catholic religion. That's how she was raised. I mean, her parents, she watched her parents conquer the whole of Spain to unite it under Catholic Christian rule. So she was very much brought up in the belief that that's the one true faith. Um, and obviously it was for Christians at that time, the Reformation hadn't really begun at all until sort of the 1510s. So she very much sticks to that though throughout her life. Um, she seemed to be very pious. Um, she leads a very pious household. She instructs her ladies in waiting um, in how to lead a pious life. Um, she loves religious books, books of hours, of course, being one of those kind of traditional Catholic texts that she engages with. Um, and she's even said to wear things like hair shirts um, to pe- for penance for herself as well. Um, so I think it, in some ways she was almost a more extreme religious example, um, very, very pious and actually was praised by all sorts of people around Europe for her piety, including Erasmus, who is sort of one of the ultimate um, figures at the forefront of the Renaissance. And she commissioned him to write several texts for her about education and particularly for her daughter, Mary. And always she was praised for for being a pious woman and a pious wife. No, absolutely. I think Catherine of Aragon was a model queen. I think she's yeah. often referred to as she? she's often She's the model queen. Yes, absolutely. But I think it's time to mention the other woman, as she's often <laughs> referred to. 
Anne. <laughs> Is that her name? <laughs> <laughs> what was Anne's youth and education like? So Anne's youth and education was in some ways very similar, but in some ways obviously very different to Catherine. And I think that's what's important to remember, even as Owen and I in our book and in our exhibition tried to compare the two is that there are obvious differences between the two of them and you can't kind of wash over them because that would be equally inaccurate. But we do have to uh, turn an eye to the nuances that show that they did have more similarities than we thought. But yes, Anne was raised um, as part of the Boleyn family who, and I think this is being acknowledged more in popular history at the moment, but were not just a, a sort of rising family with Anne. They had already risen very high before Anne was born. It was really the generations of Boleyns before Anne was born, Geoffrey, um, who bought Hever uh, and became mayor of London and bought lots of properties, including Blickling as well, where we think Anne was born. And then his sons, William and then Thomas as well, obviously Anne's father had, had been very successful in his court career and was a very trusted friend and diplomat of Henry VIII. So when Anne was born, the Boleyns were an established family and, and a family who were very successful in, in what they'd done. Um, but obviously Anne helped them to rise even further um, when she uh, came back to court in the 1520s. But there's dispute about when Anne was born. It's still not, we still don't have a sort of definitive date. There's a, an ongoing and lively debate. Um, I think most people would would go with around 1501. That tends to be what I personally um, side with. Some people go for 1507, 1505 born around the turn of the century around 1501 it's likely she was born in Blickling Hall in Norfolk um, which was her family's Norfolk seat her family were from Norfolk traditionally and then moved to Hever um, in around 1505 which is when her parents Thomas and Elizabeth had um, co-ownership unusually of the castle and would have moved down there. Um, I mean, Hever is the perfect location for Thomas to have been halfway between court in London and halfway between the coast at Dover, where he was going off to the continent to do his um, European missions. So it's very likely that Elizabeth, I think, and the children settled at Hever to be in that kind of prime location um, to see Thomas when he was in between places. And for Elizabeth also was one of Catherine of Aragon's ladies in waiting. So Rather ironically, um, yeah, Anne's mother was indeed Baroness of the Bedchamber, which was a really important position at Catherine of Aragon's coronation years earlier. So they were established court players. Oh. But Anne would have started her education at Hever under Elizabeth, under tutors. We do know that Thomas um, was at the forefront as well of the kind of humanist renaissance, was also close friends with Erasmus. Um, so he did believe in educating his daughters to a very similar level to his sons. Um, we know that George Boleyn, Mary Boleyn and Anne Boleyn, the surviving um, Boleyn children, were all very well educated. George was particularly so, but Anne, uh, for a woman especially, was, was very well educated, seemingly to the same level as George. We know that they spoke French fluently. George also spoke Italian. Um, I'm sure they had some Latin um, and they were experts in poetry and music and all those kinds of accomplishments as well. But Anne really starts her education, her proper adult education abroad when she moves to Mechelen in 1512, which is the court of Margaret of Austria. And there she spends a year in Margaret's court. She learns French. Ironically, Margaret of Austria also taught Catherine of Aragon French around 12 years earlier, but there's our first sort of similarity between the two <laughs> queens. And 
and also is exposed at Margaret's Court to sort of the height of European culture. It's seen as Europe's premier finishing school. So really, she's entered a kind of European world that will start to mark her identity. And then after a year in 1513, she moves to France to be in the train of initially of, of the Princess Mary, who's becoming the Queen of France. It's Henry VIII's sister. But that marriage only lasts a few months. Um, and Mary goes back to England with a lot of her English attendants, of which Anne was one initially. But Anne stays in France and she enters the train of Queen Claude, who's the new Queen of France, the uh, wife of King Francis. And she stays with Queen Claude for the next seven years in France and really only comes back to England in at least by 1522 as her first sort of court appearance um, at the Chateau Vert pageant. But before then, she has seven years in France, which we really have very little documentary evidence about, which is so frustrating. But there is a brilliant book by Estelle Peronc coming out next year about Anne's connections with France, um, which I'm very excited for everyone to be able to read because she does sort of shed some new light on those years, which is so important. But yeah, Anne's um, time in France was, I think, the most defining time of her entire life. I think she returns. A, a French man said that she was um, French almost above English, which is the highest compliment from a Frenchman to um, call an Englishwoman French, because uh, she really sort of imbued herself with that kind of utmost Renaissance feel of sophistication and um, wit and charisma. And I think she really played on her exoticism when she came back to England. So you see really Catherine and Anne both had really quite unusually outstanding educations, both European educations, obviously Catherine's more Latinate and Anne's more French. But really, I think both of them were very highly educated, brilliantly clever women who I would argue were more clever than Henry himself, both of them. And I think you can say by looking at both of their upbringings that Henry had a bit of a type. I think he loved really intelligent, strong women who weren't going to just kind of sit in the corner and just do whatever he said, at least at this stage of his life. He maybe wanted that more as he got older. But I think at this stage in his life, yeah, he was really drawn to both Catherine and Anne for everything they could offer sort of besides just their looks i think they are both such a stellar education yeah absolutely. <laughs> they, they were so educated when anne returned to england by 1522 we know henry doesn't notice her at first yes she, she goes under the radar a bit yeah when do you think the king first started getting interested in anne Oh, see, it's so hard for us to know. So much of the kind of mid-1520s are just kind of slightly out of our reach. But I think that, again, we, we don't really know much about her his relationship with Anne's older, possibly older sister, Mary. Um, but it certainly would have ended by around 1526, which is when I think we can really firmly see Henry starting to pursue Anne. And I think by that point, we see things like love letters starting to appear. We have Obviously, we have the brilliant love letters that Henry sent Anne, which are in the Vatican archives at the moment. We very sadly don't have Anne's replies because I would have loved to have seen um, what she wrote in her own voice to Henry. We have to kind of grasp her own voice through his replies to her. But yeah, we really start to see, I think, around 1525, 1526, Henry's turning his eye to Anne. So she's been at court for several years, as you say, at least by 1522. During that time, she's had her own kind of courtship with Henry Percy, who 
some would say was maybe the great love of her life or someone that she really did want to to marry but obviously that marriage is stopped by Cardinal Wolsey who becomes one of Anne's sworn enemies I think for doing so um and then by the 1526-27 we have Anne accepting the king's proposal so really it's a fairly swift I think change but then obviously it's another seven years before they actually are able to get married so their courtship maybe is fairly fast paced but from the moment they are engaged or she accepts his proposal to the moment they get married is another seven years so she has to keep his kind of interest and passion for her and love for her going for a very long time without giving up the obvious um so she has to really kind of keep him on his toes which I think she does very well um and yes it's not until 1533 um or 1532 that we know that that they first are able to consummate their relationship and then get married shortly after. Bit of a weird question what I'm going to ask. Sure. But I always think about it. Um, we know Anne didn't accept his advances straight away. Yeah. And I've always wondered, was that out of some loyalty to Catherine of Aragon? Because obviously she was mm. a lady in waiting. Yeah. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really, really interesting interesting theory I think um and I there must probably have been some of that in it because as we know Anne's mum is um in Catherine's service for years Anne and her sister are then in Catherine's service um for several years before um Henry turns his eye to Anne and I think Anne would have admired Catherine a lot I really do I think having been in France and learnt from many powerful women there, like Louise of Savoy and Claude and Marguerite d'Angoulême. I think coming back to England and seeing another queen, another European Renaissance queen in Catherine, I think Anne must have admired her and, and learnt from her. And we know that she learns from her in the ways that she manages Henry and, and exercises power. So it's definitely possible that that is a part of her kind of resistance at first. I always personally think that the main factor in Anne's resistance is more her observation of his relationship with her sister with Mary um, and how Mary is used by the king and then discarded by the king and I think that is a lesson that Anne had probably seen multiple times in France and Francis I was also notorious for his mistresses so I'm sure she's seen um, this kind of culture of, of women being picked up by kings and then dropped and maybe going off to have an illegitimate child or be married off to someone. And Anne, I think, always had higher ambitions than that. I think she knew that she was not going to be one of those people. She wasn't going to let that happen, which really was quite a radical thought because nobody had said no to Henry before. It just didn't happen. You didn't say no to kings. So the fact that she did, I think, immediately piqued his interest. And I think the chase was absolutely what he loved with Anne. And I think she played that so very well. But yeah, she thinks, I think she learned a lot from, from Catherine, but also from her sister's experiences and knowing that that wasn't the life that she was going to have for herself. And it's very brave and very bold. And I think it deserves a lot of um, commendation, really, that Anne didn't just sort of do the easy route and just say yes to the king immediately. She had a bigger brighter vision for herself and she stuck to that so it's it's really quite impressive I think. No I completely agree I I'm of the camp that you know she wasn't trying to manipulate the king it was mm -hmm. she was thinking it through and totally. she, she didn't just want to be another mistress 
Absolutely. Yeah, she had higher ambitions, I think. Which I think is should be commended, you know, especially in Seriously. And so moving on to the the exhibition where we try and not compare the work, Catherine and Anne, we are trying to show the similarities between mm-hmm. them. So I thought you could talk a little bit about the research you did in Anne's book of hours and then finding Catherine of Aragon's book of hours as well. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, my research began with just Anne's Book of Hours, her printed Book of Hours from 1527. Um, It's one of two that Heva have in their collection. The other is a manuscript Book of Hours from the second quarter of the 15th century, so it's much older. And I think the printed Book of Hours has always been overlooked in scholarship before and in popular history. It does include Anne's wonderful rhyming couplet that she wrote inside, which is remember me when you do pray that hope doth lead from day to day. And she signed her name, although a later binder has carelessly cut the page where she signed her name. And so the bottom of her signature is cut off, which is very frustrating. Um, But it's a famous sort of inscription of hers. But I think beyond that, the book was never really looked at or considered in much detail. Um, which surprises me and still still does, but I think that it's been a privilege of my life, to be honest, to be the, the person who can study that book in depth and bring its secrets forward because there's so much that it has to tell us. So I started just, yeah, with a close study of that one book. I found inside it four further inscriptions, which had been later erased in the book. So it was previously thought to only have Anne's note inside, And I found four further notes, um, which at first I hoped and thought might be written by her, but sadly they weren't. Um, But they were written by people close to her, like a kind of network of Kentish gentry people, particularly women. uh, Four out of the five inscriptions in the book are, are written by women. And it seems to be this wonderful kind of story of solidarity and community um, and bravery in this kind of ring of people who kept the book safe after Anne's downfall when it would have been really quite dangerous to own something that still bore Anne's name and inscription when Henry was kind of attempting this sort of systematic erasure of Anne Um, and so the fact that these local women to Heva kept Anne's book safe Um, from prying eyes and that's the reason it survives today and we still have it I think is just such a a wonderful story Um, and so that was kind of one prong of my research was the inscriptions and piecing together the provenance that that they gave me and another aspect was um, the realization that another book existed out there that was the exact same copy of the same printing um, and that it was once owned by Catherine of Aragon which is I still remember the moment I sort of made the connection and I was so confused and sort of second guessing myself and thinking that can't be right. They can't have both kind of shared this Catholic book at, from such a time, the 1527 is such a pivotal time in their relationship and in the changing structure of the Henrician court. So it was such an unusual connection to make initially, but, but yeah, that's one that has been really fruitful and, um, Obviously, printed books were printed in batches, so a a good amount would have been printed at one time. Um, So there are other copies of that printing still out there. And we released, um, I worked with Owen on some research that we released earlier this year, which found that another copy of that same printing was once owned by Thomas Cromwell, um, which is another really, again, initially confusing kind of figure to place amongst these others. They're all very disparate figures. 
And so it's brilliant that we can see these connections through this simple printed prayer book. Um, and we used that, that kind of moment of unity and moment of connection between Catherine and Anne to try and widen our lens and, and do as you say and view what, what else might have connected Catherine and Anne and, and what other similarities did they share. And I think it's been a really fruitful way to kind of encourage new conversations around the relationship between Catherine and Anne and around the wives in general. I'm really passionate about challenging traditional narratives that do pit women against one another I think it's entirely unproductive and rooted in misogynist histories and I think it's very much an outdated narrative and one that is time that it was re-examined so starting to do that with Catherine and Anne has been a really um, brilliant experience and we've seen such a positive kind of response to that on social media and on people joining in and agreeing and trying to challenge what we know and, and think about these women in different ways. No, I completely agree. I get asked a lot, have you got a favourite wife of Henry VIII? I'm like, yeah. no, I yeah. haven't because I'm not, I don't want to put them against each other. Exactly. And I think that's really important. I think it's encouraged. It's always encouraged to kind of have one favourite. And obviously we can have, you know, people that we enjoy studying or relate to mm. more totally, but it doesn't have to be at the detriment of another woman. I think that's the key is it doesn't have to be, we love Anne, but we hate Catherine. You can love Anne and love Catherine and, and Jane and the other Catherines and Annes, you know, it's <laughs> it's possible to to do that. So yeah, that's, that's really important. No, I, I completely agree. So I remember reading, I think from your research, actually, that Catherine of Aragon's Book of Hours was less detailed compared to mm. Anne Boleyn's. Yeah. And I was wondering how you were able to tell that one was, you know, more detailed and more guilt compared to the other. Yes. Yeah, so that's, yeah, brilliant question. And that was a big part of my research. Again, was once I had that connection between Catherine and Anne, I knew I had to compare their books as closely as I could to see what was individual about both of them. And, and a phrase that we kept coming back to in the exhibition was the same but different. And I think Catherine and Anne's books were the same but different, but I also think the two women were as well. Um, and yes, Anne's book is very reflective of herself, I think. Anne's book is highly decorated. It's got gilt borders, as you say, it's got extra gold decoration. On pages where there's illuminations of um, biblical figures, she has extra border decoration. So she has these kind of oval borders around the image that are inscribed with prayers. And she's got extra red and blue corner decoration. And Catherine's has none of that. It's much more simple. It's the text and it's the pictures. And there's the odd border around a picture, but it's just a simple plain one. It's not inscribed and it's not got gold and extra decoration. So Immediately, that was really interesting to me because I thought whoever has gifted these books clearly knows that in 1527 and 28, when they were gifted, sort of which way the tides are turning, um, which is that Anne's book looks more like the book of a queen than the Queen of England's book. And so I think you can tell that by this time, the public kind of opinion at court is maybe shifting. People know that Anne's star is on the rise and Catherine's unfortunately is on the wane. And that's one kind of insight, I think, into the time that these books can give us. But another is possibly if these books had input by the women themselves, um, which is a possibility that whoever gifted these books was able to ask for preferences from the people that they were gifting them to. And I think it would be very in keeping for Anne um, to have a highly decorated book all the other books of hers that survive today, which is about nine or 10, 
a highly decorated, um, beautifully bound. Sadly, the binding of Anne's book is no longer original, so we don't know what it originally was bound in. But the insides are gorgeously decorated, and that's absolutely in keeping from what we know about her and what she loved and what she grew up with as well, remembering that she grew up in the courts of Margaret of Austria and Claude of France, who both loved gorgeously illuminated books. So I think it's an insight into Anne's personality, into her ambition, into her position at the time. Um, and I think for Catherine, it's also an insight into that, but the flip side. So an insight into how her maybe her position is waning, but also remembering that she loved traditional religion. She loved... Um, the religious text above the decoration, perhaps. So she would have enjoyed the book for the book, never mind um, the decoration that was involved. And it was still, it, it still is highly decorated. I must disclaim, it's still a beautiful book, um, just slightly less sort of gaudy um, than than Anne's. So yeah, there's there's really interesting insights I think to sort of compare across the two, which is why it was brilliant for us to be able to reunite them. Uh, under the same roof for, for probably the first time in 500 years um, so visitors could go back and forth and see the two two books themselves. Yes absolutely I I went to Hever in April as I've probably mm. mentioned already and I was able to see the two books together yeah and it was just so amazing to be in the room with two queens books of ours yeah and special, just, isn't it? just look at them like they're there <laughs> I was so emotional when we finally installed Catherine's book because it had been, it was a really hard journey, I will say, for me to arrange that loan and for it to get it out to England because it's it lives in New York in the Morgan Library. So, but when they finally arrived together, I just, I, I did definitely shed a few tears because it was just the most poignant experience to see them reunited. And yeah, these tiny, they're tiny as well as you would have seen when you came to visit they're they're really very small um sort of hand-sized books but they're so powerful they're these tiny objects that just give you such a powerful sense of these wonderful um women behind them so yeah it's very it's always very moving I think seeing intimate objects like that reunited no I completely agree going back onto Catherine of Anne and moving past their books of ours because I think I could talk about them all day <laughs> What were Catherine and Anne like as mothers? Because obviously we know they were two strong, another two strong independent yeah. women. Totally, yeah. I think that's maybe their ultimate point of unity. When we were looking at their similarities and when we were writing the book, I think what Owen and I kept coming back to is the fact that maybe their ultimately uniting point is that neither of them gave Henry the son that he so longed for. But they gave England her first two queens regnant, who both of their legacies, both Mary I and Elizabeth I's legacies, have long outlived, ironically, the legacy of Henry's eventual son by Jane Seymour Edward. So the two women who eventually um, came from, from Henry's marriages to Catherine and Anne, uh, Mary and Elizabeth, were, were really maybe the sons that he always wanted in a way, I think, in terms of the legacies they were able to create and still have in popular memory today. So, yeah, I think motherhood is a really strong uniting factor between Catherine and Anne, and both of them were incredibly devoted mothers and incredibly loving and caring and protective mothers. Catherine um, obviously had Mary uh, amidst a, a host of miscarriages and stillbirths and um or pregnancies that didn't go to term 
And so I think obviously having Mary would have been the most important and special moment for Catherine to watch her grow up into adulthood and to have that strong relationship with her. She really cared deeply about Mary and um, took really minute detail really into things like Mary's education, for example. Obviously, Catherine had been educated under her strong mother. I think she really wanted to pass that down to Mary. And I think she did very successfully. So she organized a lot of Mary's education. Again, she organized for Erasmus to write treatises on the importance of educating women, specifically dedicating that to her daughter, to Mary. So she really is imbuing Mary, I think, with this sense of how important it is to have all the accomplishments of a man, but as a woman in a man's world. Um, I think she did that very well um, because Mary obviously turns out to be an incredibly learned woman in her own right. And then Anne with Elizabeth is obviously it's different in some ways and sad that Anne wasn't around for much of Elizabeth's life at all. But the very little um, time that they did get to spend together those few years, we know that Anne doted on Elizabeth completely. She wanted to be around her all the time. She was really upset when she had to go away and live with her own household and with her own nurses. And she sent her loads of gifts and clothes. We have receipts of clothes that she would send Elizabeth. And I think, yeah, she absolutely adored her. And I think despite this kind of great and mounting pressure from Henry for both of um, Catherine and Anne to bear him a son, Catherine and, and Anne couldn't have been more delighted to have their daughters. I, I don't think they would have swapped them for anything. I think they absolutely adored them. And I think both Elizabeth and Mary did their mothers proud in their own adulthood and in their own queenship. So, and I think you kind of see that the relationship between Catherine and Anne mapped onto the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth, actually, as they grow up. And it's really strained at times, obviously, as sisters and as rivals to the throne. But equally, I think there's, there's this underlying kind of respect and connection that you see right through to the place that we ended our exhibition on, actually, which was the coronation robes of Elizabeth I, um, which she didn't have made from scratch, which is unusual for Elizabeth because we know that she loved to have clothes made. It's one of her favourite things to do. But instead of having new robes made, she used the coronation robes that had been made for her sister, for Mary. So you see these lovely kind of connections, I think, through Elizabeth and Mary, despite their obvious differences, which can kind of be tracked back onto the relationship between their two mothers. No, absolutely. I I think Mary and Elizabeth were so much closer than popular media likes to portray mm -hmm. them as. I do think it was strange, as you say, but I, I, especially as Elizabeth was growing up, you see Mary really looked after yes. Elizabeth. And I think that's what you have to take away from it is they looked after each other when they needed it. Totally, totally. And yeah, I think particularly in their youth, and I think especially as Mary saw what happened to Elizabeth um, happening, Oh, Mary saw what happened to herself happening to Elizabeth when Anne had her downfall and Henry moved on to Jane. I I'm sure Mary saw a lot of herself in Elizabeth in those moments of suddenly your mother dying or being taken out of Henry's um, sort of marriage and suddenly you're a bastard and you don't have any rights. And I think Mary really looked after Elizabeth, as you say, in those early years, particularly as they grew up. I think they were very close. And I think religion then became a struggle and power became a struggle. But ultimately, they still had that relationship. They were still sisters. And I think they both still loved each other. No, completely. Are there any similarities in how Anne and Catherine ruled as queens? 
That's really interesting. I think definitely, I think Anne was inspired by Catherine's queenship. I really do think so. Um, and Anne was noted, again, maybe not so much in popular culture since, but she was noted for having and holding a very pious household, which is absolutely what Catherine did. And I'm sure what she learned from being part of Catherine's household for several years um, and encouraged her women to read religious books we know that she left out her french bible for her women to read when you we know that she read with her ladies um, and encouraged them in this kind of pious living and i think unfortunately in uh, hindsight in popular culture often Anne's queenship is seen as much more riotous and she lets her ladies run wild and it's a much more kind of sexualized atmosphere in Anne's household than it was in Catherine's which is absolutely not the case Anne was very much um, a strong and pious queen who who played by the rules very much with her um, with her household obviously the language of courtly love was eventually one of the um, things that slightly caught Anne out in the end with some of the comments that were made. But for the most part, she really did um, take care of her household in a similar way that she'd watched Catherine do. And I think we also see real big similarities in terms of patronage. So both Catherine and Anne were real, um, really forefrontal people in the kind of patronage of the arts, of religion, obviously different types of religion. Uh, Catherine was mainly patronizing um, Catholics and, and patronized reformers. But we see that passion for um, protecting new ideas coming from both of them, but also patronage of the arts. They both loved literature and poetry and culture and music, and they both really um, tried to promote those interests at court. And I also think we both see between their queenships a really strong engagement with politics, to be honest, which again is often, I think, stripped away from them when we only see them as the wife and the other woman, that kind of active political side, I think, gets lost. But both of them really were active as, as much as a woman could be in politics, I think particularly Anne, but Catherine very much as well. You know, she, as we've mentioned, she was regent for a while um, at Flodden while Henry was away. But also she um, continually was kind of working Henry. I think they were both very good at working Henry to um, say things maybe at the dinner table to then hopefully get into his head to start influencing policy and and very much did that as well and obviously was at the forefront of the reformation in England itself which was a massive political and religious um, movement but yeah I think both of them were very politically active as queens but also um, very active in patronage and in leading um, cultured educated pious households. No, I agree. I think they're a lot more similar than we've been led to believe, which is completely what you, Erin and Alison, aim yeah. to do in your exhibition. But what do you think we should take away from learning about Catherine and Anne? And what do you think the legacy is they've left behind? That's a really great question. I think that we should take away from Catherine and Anne that... Yeah, just I think an, an awareness of their multidimensional nuanced characters as opposed to their stereotypes, which have been so perpetuated by history in the past. So viewing them not just as the loyal Catholic wife and the reformist seductress other woman, but actually trying to flesh out their characters to be this 
fully nuanced versions of themselves um, where Catherine, yes, she was a loyal Catholic wife, but she was also a formidable political force and an active um, patronizer. And also before her marriage to, to Henry, Catherine was the first ever female ambassador in Europe while she was in this kind of really awkward intermediary um, position of being between marriages to Arthur and Henry. And she was in a really precarious position in England she um, became, yeah, the first ever female ambassador in Europe. So that's another example of her kind of political activity that we just don't remember. Nobody remembers that kind of fact in our popular imagination of Catherine. And then likewise with Anne, I think, instead of just seeing her through the lens of her sexuality, which she's often just characterised as, actually remembering how active she was in pushing the policies of the Reformation and the break with Rome and the creation of the Church of England. She really was spearheading that, not just as an object of Henry's lust, but as actually a person who was a driving force and agent of change. So, yeah, I think remembering that they were fully fleshed out, powerful women, not just seen through the lens of their marriage and relationship to Henry. I think that's the most important thing that we can take from them. And I think their ultimate legacies, as I've mentioned, I think were their two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, who really shaped the latter half of the 16th century in England and our views of female uh, Queen's Regnant. So really, really important. No, I completely agree. And I think for anyone that missed the exhibition, it's a real shame because it, it was so, it was fabulous. Thank but I think you, you can you. still purchase the book, can't you? So if, I will yes. leave a link down below if anyone wants to read the book and capture a glimpse of what it was like for Catherine and Anne. Before I let you go, I do have some non-official questions. Sure, let's go for it. And I was wondering, do you have a Tudor pet peeve? Oh, a Tudor pet peeve? I think I probably have quite a few. <laughs> um, I think one of my pet peeves is when I'm watching um, popular versions of history, which is also one of my sort of um, guilty pleasures. I also love to watch um, like the Tudors or the, the Berlin girl and Spanish princess, things like that. But my one of my pet peeves is just I I unfortunately always I can find it really hard to separate my historian brain from my <laughs> just enjoyment fan brain. So I'm always watching them going, oh, that costume's not quite right. Or oh, I think the pregnancy armor in Spanish Princess was a real pet peeve of mine. I was just thinking, oh, this is just so not right. But there's so there's little things like that. But I think as a broader theme, um, I would say, yes, just this narrative of without sounding like a broken record, of pitting women against one another, not just Catherine and Anne, but Elizabeth and Mary, or looking abroad, looking at Catherine de' Medici, the way that she's been um, villainized in French history. Just the the view of women, I think, in history has always been something from a child, from childhood that I've wanted to try and influence and um, in a positive way and, and try and challenge traditional male narratives. And if I'm looking at pet peeves, I would say that that's one that still is very pervasive. For example, Mary I being still known largely as Bloody Mary and there's some brilliant work going into Mary's image um, by a host of wonderful scholars. Um, but things like that, that the, are particularly attached to women, these kind of negative stereotypes that are, are attached to powerful women from the time, that's my ultimate pet peeve because Thankfully, we're part of a generation where that's really being challenged and things are really changing and it's really exciting to be part of that. Um, but there's still a lot that needs to change. 
No, I completely agree. I, I posted a video, it was months ago, and it was about Amberlynn's downfall, and I got so many comments saying, oh, you know, you get you reap, reap what you sow, and it's like, what? <laughs> no, I hate that. I hate that. Oh, and that's just so, it's perpetuated by these traditional narratives. I, absolutely, and I had to not reply because I was, I showed yeah. my partner and he was like, just don't reply because you're going to start arguments yeah. with people because I was getting annoyed. <laughs> like, it's like, no, this is no. wrong. That's what you have to do sometimes is, is not try and rise to people. I think sometimes people in comments just leave you comments to try and bait an answer back. So sometimes you have to just not do it. But I do that. Owen and I message each other all the time if we see things online about that are perpetuating stereotypes of people that we've studied or that we love. And it's, we're like, Oh, this is so frustrating. I wish we could jump in, but you can't jump in at every mm. single comment or you'd be there for, for hours. Um, but actually speaking of comments, I have one last pet peeve, if I can just say one yeah. more. Um, and that's about all the comments we get when we post pictures or videos of us holding the books of ours with no gloves and guaranteed 90% of the comments will be, why are you not wearing gloves? You should be wearing gloves but not in a very polite way, it's often said. Um, so just to disclaim for anyone who's watching or listening, <laughs> we don't wear gloves with, when we're holding old books or manuscripts. They deaden the senses in your fingers and you're more likely to damage the books. So the National Archives state the guidelines and we all follow them and it's clean, dry hands are best practice and has been for a very long time. But it's funny how many people you get Um thinking that they they know the best and you just have to try and um, be politely um, correcting I guess <laughs> you heard it here you don't know how to wear gloves <laughs> I, I do actually see that because I follow Heaver Castle on TikTok yeah. and I'm just like okay. we have an article now on the Heaver <laughs> website so we can just direct people to that <laughs> brilliant do you have a favorite Tudor book or like it can be fiction or non-fiction Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I love, I have, a, I mean, I'm sure as your bookshelf probably is, my bookcase is filled with Tudor books. <laughs> um, so many, so many. I think the Bible for me of Anne Boleyn, I have to mention is Eric Ives's The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn. I mean, that was probably one of the, probably the first actually scholarly book I read about Anne. Um, and since then, I think lots of people call it the, the Bible of, of Anne Boleyn because it very much is. I mean, there's things in Eric's work that I've managed to disprove actually in my own research. And there's always things that have sort of been reevaluated. So there's no book that's going to always stay very 100% accurate and not be challenged. That would be weird. That's what history is about. It's about challenging things. But I think as an overall narrative of Anne's life, Eric Ives's book is just one of the best out there. Um, and yeah, there's just, I'm, I'm actually privileged to be in a world where um, there's so many brilliant books constantly being brought out um, that it's almost hard to keep on top of everyone's. Um, yeah, some of the people I've mentioned, Owen's books, I absolutely love, Estelle's books. Um, Nicola Tallis is absolutely brilliant. I love her book. Her book on Margaret Beaufort was also one of the first books that I read. Another really strong woman from history who's been much maligned. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of, of brilliant books out there, but I think if I had to choose one, I'd go back to Eric Ives every time. No, absolutely. I, I've I've got so many books. I, just, I mean, I've got my <laughs> f 
fiction, my historical fiction there, yeah, all my non-fiction. <laughs> I love it. I love historical fiction. That's, I think, also a big part of what got me into scholarly history is just loving historical fiction first, because there's so many great historical fiction books. And then it comes to the point where you're reading the fiction and you start to realise what's very much made up. And you think, oh, actually, I'm learning something here because I'm able to sort of understand what's fact and what's fiction. So, yeah, it's a really good medium. Absolutely. Do you have a favourite Tudor building? other than Heber. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say you caught me there. <laughs> Obviously I'd have to say Heber but aside from Heber, Hampton Court Palace is always going to be, I'll always have a real soft spot for it. Obviously it's a real jigsaw of different eras mm. Hampton Court but the Tudor kind of Great Hall and the Tudor apartments are I think just some of the most special survivals um, and I love the Great Hall so much and I love the H&A outside on the ambulance gateway and there's so many different aspects to Hampton Court that I feel like I could visit there so many times and never get bored because there's always something new that you'll notice and I think that's the beauty of such a big space like Hampton Court compared to Hever which is a lot more small a lot more intimate and I'm still learning new things about Hever every day but in somewhere like Hampton Court I think just the volume of of space there is to see is just incredible um and I think they're reopening the Woolsey apartments soon which I'm really excited about because I've not seen those in a while I think since pre-pandemic so yeah I'd probably say Hampton Court but there's so many there's so many brilliant we're really sport for choice in England and in Britain I think for um Tudor and historic houses in general there's just so many aren't there <laughs> so many I, I, I do think Eva's is my favorite though oh, I, yeah. I, I think yeah I think it is gonna be Eva of course that's what we like to hear <laughs> one last question for you before I let you go what is your favorite historical fact oh my goodness favorite historical fact um Gosh, there's probably so many. Um, I guess, I guess my favorite historical fact now would be one that it, part of my own research, um, which would be that Anne Boleyn, Catherine of Aragon, and Thomas Cromwell all owned the same copy of the same Catholic printed book, which is just that's a fact, and it's crazy. The implications of that are just absolutely mad and it still confuses me how this one tiny printed book unites these very disparate figures from the man who brought both queens down to <laughs> the two queens who were warring and rivals it's just it's crazy so that's probably selfishly maybe my favorite current fact because it's one I've been working on <laughs> no I I, com I completely agree I when I it came up that you discovered the Thomas Cromwell stuff was like yeah what I know. it's <laughs> so confusing <laughs> I love you... facts that oh, challenge sorry. you sorry no I was just gonna <laughs> say I love facts that challenge you I love any kind of new historical discovery there's been loads there's been brilliant research done in so many different areas but any historical fact that challenges something that you already knew or confuses something that you thought you knew I think that's just so exciting no I completely agree thank you so much for coming on today I am very grateful <laughs> you're so welcome thank you for having me I've had great fun thank you so much